So excited uh, about our text this morning. If you want to head towards Hebrews chapter 10, that's where we're going to be. Just to add my word of welcome, my name's Kenan. have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at Harvest and uh, preaching God's word this morning. We're in a series called Seek the Lord While He May Be Found. Isaiah 55, 6 and following has been our theme. And we'll be in this series this week and then one more next week. And then we'll turn the page into our Advent season as we participate intentionally in the anticipation of Christ. His first coming, of course, we celebrate as Christmas, and the Christmas season is all about the incarnation of God and the second person of the Son of God, Jesus. And yet we also anticipate his second coming. He said he would come to die, and he said he would come to reign, and we're in the in-between. And so we want to take the month of December, the Advent calendar, and uh, not to be liturgical just for the sake of being liturgical, but for the sake of um, preparing our hearts and experiencing a a greater anticipation of Christ, a greater experience of Christ this Christmas season. So that's where we'll be uh, starting week after next. I also want to just welcome any of those that are visiting. I'm just glad that you're with us. As Mike said, we hope that you'll find a a home here. We hope that you'll be uh, stirring your affections for Christ in this gathering this morning and that as we can get to know you, and you get to know us, this can be a place you can grow in the grace of the gospel. I do realize the challenges of being a larger church uh, are the challenges of really doing exactly what we desire to do. Make sure every person here is known, loved, shepherded, and discipled. And so that is, uh, I promise you, we're just coming off an elder retreat the last three days where we've been praying towards that end and uh, and, uh, dreaming towards that end and strategically thinking through, praying that God would help us to do that well from the church's end. But we're going to need some help, I'll just be honest with you, that as a body we're going to have to be willing to be known and loved and shepherded and discipled. So we're going to invite you in and hope that you will come in with both feet and uh, get in a, a, a place. We have discipleship communities where we can really get smaller as a church and minister to one another with the gifts that are in this body. And so uh, that's what we're seeking to do. Super glad you're here this morning. Okay, our text this morning is a uh, man. I don't know if you. I don't know if I could ever. Yeah, there's no. There's no text that's a bad text. Everyone's uh, eternally true and relevant. But boy, this one is really a great kind of culminating truth for the series we're in. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Very word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the word of God for the people of God and the people of God said, praise be to God. And you may be seated. Lord, I just ask you to um, fill our time with, with your presence. Just dwell here uniquely among us as we dwell in your word and in your presence, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Oh God, we just, uh, we pause in the middle of of a world that uh, is so chaotic and in a world that sees so much evil. Our hearts are uh, torn 
by what we see going on in the Ukraine and what we see going on in Israel and the Gaza Strip. And Oh God, we, we long when we see these atrocities of war. We long for peace. We long for a, a physical and a spiritual peace that the gospel would go forth through your people in these trying times. And we long for the peace that will only... Uh, be manifest when you return. So we long for your returning. We cry out with John, come soon, Lord Jesus. So God, be with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world uh, as they endure suffering in, um, in unimaginable ways. And, and God, for those who do not know you, among the Palestinians, among the Israelis, among Hamas, among the Russians, and among the Ukrainians, for those who do not know you, no matter which side they are fighting on, would you find a way through the atrocities of war to prick their hearts with the truth of the eternal peace that comes through the blood of Jesus? God, would you do a redeeming work where Satan means what he means for evil, would you, God, use for good? We'd ask it in Jesus' name. And as I preach this morning, I must decrease. Lord Jesus, you must increase. We ask this also in your name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, let me say this just kind of as a runway into our text this morning. Uh, the last, um, well, two weeks ago, I guess, when I was in John 15 with you here, I was talking about uh, abiding in Christ and what that means to dwell with Christ, uh, to rest in Christ, to, um, uh, to be held by Christ, to experience Him. And I was talking about, kind of in a practical application at the end of that message, uh, being wise among the times that we're in, as Paul encourages the Ephesians, part of that would mean uh, taking a spiritual inventory, taking a look at our lives and thinking through what things in my life stir my affections for Christ. And how can I establish those things to a greater degree? How do I give them more space? How do I make rhythms out of those things that my heart and my love for Jesus might be kindled on a daily and a weekly basis? basis more consistently. And on the converse side, what things rob my affections for Christ? And how could I recognize those things, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal them to me, <coughs> and offer those things up to God? The, the vine dresser who is faithful to prune. Sometimes we hold tightly to those things which are disruptive, which distract the fruit bearing that God wants to bring in our lives. How do we let go of those so that God, the vine dresser, can prune that foliage foliage, however you say that, from the, the vine so that the sap doesn't merely produce more greenery, but it does as it's intended to do. When we cut back the greenery, it can get to the branches and produce more fruit. And so I, I challenged us as a body to be thinking about those things. I even gave one example of something in my life to try to get the, the wheels turning in your own lives. You know, I said the things that rob our um, affections are really things that bring anxiety in your life. What things bring you anxiety? you're having a hard time turning over to Jesus. Or maybe they breed discontentment. Uh, or maybe they're things that tempt us to sin in a, in a unique way, in a consistent way. And I, I gave this one example of me, especially on the breeding discontentment. I said, you know, social media, just at some point, maybe a year or so ago, I realized that social media wasn't serving any great end in my life. It kind of served as a time waster. It was one of those things, not as an inherent evil in and of itself, and certainly can be useful at times, but I just noticed I had a tendency, if I was looking up something, then I would linger, and then it would become a distraction, and then some kind of, somehow it would breed discontentment in my heart. 
just noticing that, the Holy Spirit uh, quickening that realization to me, realize, hey, this is one of those things I think God might want to prune out so there's more space for those things that would stir my affections for Christ, that would bear fruit in abiding, that would bring the joy of Christ into my life, his supernatural joy imparted to me amidst my circumstance, if this were pruned out. Just one example, what are those things in your life? And then I talked about those things in my life which do seem to stir my affections for Christ, whether it's, uh, for me, good coffee, and the good's important, good coffee in the morning uh, over God's word. I talked about date nights, just the intentional pursuit of my wife. The, the Holy Spirit seems to always meet me in that, I think, because that's a picture of how he pursues his bride, that we stay intentional in that pursuit, keep that hot, all of our, all the days he's given us with the, with the wife of our youth, that we'd pursue her well for us fellas. Uh, or maybe reconciling, uh, being reconciled to an old friend where there's been uh, something that's caused bitterness uh, or caused an estrangement between you. Well, whatever it is to consider those things which stir your affections for Jesus. Now, Ronnie got up last week, and he, he brought one to the forefront that I thought was uh, really insightful and really good. He said, you know, when Kenan was preaching that the week before, uh, he said the thing that came to his mind, which this was encouraging me and convicting, he said was uh, the bookends of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he challenged us. Uh, do you remember when Jesus, the first thing we see in his ministry? He said, I'm in my father's house. You should have known where to find me. I'll be doing my father's business. And then at the end of his ministry, the last thing he said in the Great Commission, when you're making disciples, I will be with you. The bookends of his ministry is if you're about the father's business, you're where Jesus is. And you'll have him abiding in you and you and him in a unique way. Ronnie said the application for him was he wanted to leave the sanctuary and sprint out somewhere and share the gospel. Somewhat selfishly, not only because that could impact somebody else's life eternally, but because he wanted to just feel that out on the edge, adjoining uh, his spirit to the Lord's, the joy of Christ imparted to him. He said, you can guarantee that's there when you're sharing the gospel, when you're making disciples. It's a promise from Christ. Uh, convicting to me, uh, as he said that, I had the same thought. And I thought, you know, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that for me, I don't know how it is for you, I don't know when the last time you shared the gospel was. But I thought how I, in the flesh, I naturally gravitate away from sharing the gospel. Because it's, uh, even though I believe in it with all my heart, even though I love Jesus with all my heart, it can be awkward. And there's, you know, you can kind of feel the, the, uh, the or at least your fear of uh, failure, or fear of uh, what someone else is going to think of you can, can, can steal away uh, that desire. But, but I thought about the times I do. Ronnie's right. Something that always happens is in the vulnerability of those moments when I'm stumbling over my words and trying to get the gospel out there, you'll feel a unique dependence on Christ. You'll step into this sacred place where the Holy Spirit's dancing alive in your heart. And no matter what the outcome of a conversation might be, there's this uh, fullness of the joy of Christ that's alive in you. Um, Jesus has given us this promise, you abide in me, I'm going to abide in you, that we would be wise to figure out what things in my life stir my affections, bring me into a greater abiding uh, time with Jesus, and what things rob and steal that time away. Well, I mentioned in that sermon two weeks ago that there was one thing that was the greatest thing that stirs my affection for Christ, and it is, it is this thing. It is this gathering. It is coming on Sunday morning and the gathering of the saints and declaring together God's goodness. 
Now, this passage we have, I love. It's going to land with, a, with, a, with an exhortation to do that very thing and not neglect doing that very thing. But it's going to start with a little bit of Christology. It's going to start with the personal work of Jesus and end with three exhortations. One of them is going to be this very thing. Uh, but we're going to get the why the gathering is so sacred because of who he is and what he's done. I, I'd say this, the weight you place on who Christ is and what he has done determines the worth you ascribe to this gathering. So I'll say that again. The weight in which who Christ is and what he's done holds in your heart determines the worth you ascribe to this gathering. This text is gonna give us the why before it gives us the what. Now listen, this is a sacred text this morning exhorting us towards a sacred gathering. So he starts in verse 19 with the word therefore. Now you guys have been trained pretty well at this point, unless this is your first Sunday, that when we see a therefore, we really need to know what's going on here. And so I, as I preach through this, I'm gonna kind of give you the textual uh, relevance or runway into this. Therefore, but here's what he says, brothers or brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now hold on to that therefore, but let me explain this. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what is the author of Hebrews talking about right here? What what does that mean that we have confidence to enter the holy places? In the um, establishment of the priesthood by God, which happens all the way back in Exodus chapter uh, 26 and following, God gives the, uh, the priesthood this this special role, the, the, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, this special role of ministering on behalf of God's people, of being mediators between God who is holy and his people who are unholy, or God who is righteous, people who are unrighteous. And among the people, there'll be priests, and there'll be one high priest. And the high priest will, will, will actually um, minister in uh, the tabernacle, which will become the temple, in a, the very center of uh, the tabernacle or temple, which is a, a room that's uh, uh, sectioned off with a curtain that's called the Holy of Holies. And on that, in that room is this, uh, this altar where sacrifice is made on behalf of the people to appease the wrath of God against their sin. Now, it's God in his mercy who doesn't just judge his people and their sin, but says, I'm going to deal with your sin once and for all through a savior. That's a merciful God. But I will deal with your sin. That's a just God. And so he establishes this system of sacrifice, which is ultimately a shadow. And that's what the author of Hebrews says, one shadow after another of the substance that will come in a savior one day. So every innocent animal, every innocent lamb slain on the temple mount is ultimately pointing towards a final lamb slain for the sin of mankind, which God's not going to ask you to pay the wage of your own sin. He's going to pay it in the only way it can be paid. One who is righteous taking the place of the unrighteous so they can receive his righteousness as he takes on their unrighteousness. And that's the essence of the gospel, that God sent his only begotten son in our place and for our sin, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, in the establishment of that priesthood, the high priest who would go into the holy of holies to make sacrifice on behalf of the people, he would actually wear a very specific garb. I think it's pretty cool if you read through Exodus 26 and following. One thing he had to wear on the tassels of his, uh, of his ephod was um, bells. <laughs> he had to have bells that, hang, that hung down 
And so when he was ministering in the Holy of Holies, you could actually hear the ringing of the bells. You knew that sacrifice was going forward, not because you could get into the Holy of Holies, but you could hear what was in essence the music of your salvation, that God was satisfied in the sacrifice being made on your behalf by the one he had established to mediate the covenant. But it was no small thing to be that high priest mediating that covenant. God says, hey, this guy's not clean any more than you're clean. He's gonna have to make a sacrifice for himself He's going to have to confess his own sin, be purified uh, by the blood of an innocent animal before he's even able to make a sacrifice for you. The holiness of God is nothing to be played with. The sin of man is nothing to be uh, scoffed at. It will cost God his only begotten son. If there's anything that he wants us to understand in the temple system of sacrifice is the severity and the weight of our sin, which produces in us uh, an overwhelming humility an overwhelming gratitude that God would deal with our sin by turning his back on his only begotten son, that he might feel the weight of the wrath of God against our sin. And so, God would take this man who was consecrated by sacrifice, who could now go make consecration for us by another sacrifice, but if the man were in any way unclean, he was impure, he was in sin, maybe we don't know that, but guess who does know that? God, just performing a consecrating sacrifice for himself won't work if his heart's not right. So he might go in and make the sacrifice, or the, or the people's hearts aren't right that he's sacrificing for. In either case, he would go in, and if all of a sudden those bells went silent, do you know what that meant? That high priest had dropped dead. God had said, this isn't a worthy sacrifice. And, went, and they always had a rope tied to the high priest's ankle. Anybody want to be the high priest of Israel? <laughs> and they dragged that guy out. Next man up. All the priests are running and hiding. This is, a, this is a severe thing. The author of Hebrews says, since we have confidence, we have confidence, you and me, to enter the holy places I have no confidence in my flesh. What about you? But look what he says. Look where he says our confidence is. It's by the blood of Jesus. One of the mega themes of the book of Hebrews is there is a high priest who's the the final and true high priest, the only worthy high priest, who's worthy in and of himself, whose sacrifice will never be unworthy to God. He is the mediator of the new covenant by his blood, established to us in grace through faith because of the atoning work that he has given through his blood. So you and I, our righteous standing before God will forever be borne out on his shoulders. Will the bells of our salvation ever quit ringing with Jesus as our high priest? They'll never quit. Do we have to be concerned? Are we biting our fingernails? We have a privilege like the people of God in the Old Testament did not have. We can stand with confidence because we enter the holy places. We, and by the way, we don't have to go to a high priest who goes to God on our behalf. We go straight to God who is our high priest. Amen? We get to go straight into the holy of holies. That's the privilege we have as children of the new covenant. Jesus, our eternal high priest who is forever true. And it says in 20, 
Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Do you guys remember on the cross the seven things Jesus cried out? He was on the cross from 9 a.m. till 12, till noon. And for those three hours, he gives these things. The final saying at noon is, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We get it recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three, all three synoptic gospels record this. And then the sky goes dark. And the curtain in the temple splits right down the middle. That wasn't an accident. That's a really thick four-inch curtain that just split down the middle. What is going on? God is saying, no longer is there need of an unrighteous high priest on behalf of an unrighteous people to come in here and mediate for them. Now there's a righteous priest who stands at the right hand of God the Father who says, come to me and find rest for your soul. And the curtain's torn. You come right on into the Holy of Holies through the work of his flesh, which was torn for you and I. Man, the new and living way he opened through the curtain, that is through his flesh. We don't, uh, we don't come to a mere man as our high priest. We come to the God-man. And he's not merely the one through whom we go to worship. He's the one to whom we go to worship. Amen? Well, he keeps going. And... As if that's not enough. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, our identity, our um, acceptance before God, our ability to be in his presence and, 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 and not be in the presence of him who is righteous with our wretched unrighteousness, our entire ability does not rest on the shoulders of any priest ministering before you it rests solely on the shoulders of Christ. Our hope is in him, our identity is in him, our access to God is through him, our acceptance before God is in him. We have a great high priest. And then we get because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, we get these three exhortations. First, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, because of who he is, because of what he has done, here's the invitation, you come on. You, I know, I know, it's offensive, isn't it? It's like, wait, me invited to do what only the ministering high priest could do on behalf of a people and only once he was consecrated by the blood of innocent animals, I can just come to God? You come on in. We're supposed to cower. Like, I can't, I can't, no, I'm, I can't do that. Jesus says, hey, I'm gentle and lowly. You come to me. I stand in the presence of my Father with the utmost confidence. I have conquered sin, death, and the grave. You are washed in my blood. You stand in the confidence that I have before my Father. Come on in. Draw near. Now, with a true heart, don't ever take for granted what we have in Christ. Amen? Don't ever, don't, don't, don't ever come lightly to the presence of a holy God who has administered a righteousness to you that is not your own. You didn't earn it. Now, feel the weight of that. Come with a true heart. 
a heart that's Paul in Romans 12 saying, I come in view of his mercy, that the only response that makes any sense in view of who Jesus is and what he has done for me is that my life be a living sacrifice for him. That's a true heart. And what is the evidence of a true heart? He says right here, it's sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You know what that means? How do you sprinkle your heart? There, there's, uh, there's imagery used there. That's saying your heart's been washed by the blood of the lamb. That's talking about the regenerating work of God that's taken place in your heart, the center of your being, that the Holy Spirit's taken up residence in you, that, that he's sprinkled clean your conscience. In other words, this, this, uh, this overbearing darkness of sin, this disease of sin which had you shackled, you know that it's been dealt with once and for all in Christ. How do you know? My conscience has been freed. I'm still a sinner, and I take my sin more seriously than I ever used to, but I recognize that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and it's not just Romans 8, 1, a verse on a page. It's a truth that's been stamped on my heart. See, my heart's been sprinkled by the blood in a way that has freed my conscience. There's been a regenerating work of God. And what else, what else is the evidence? That you are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and washed with pure water. There's been a physical, outward, symbolic act of an inward, regenerating, transforming work of the Holy Spirit. You're baptized. You go and you make a public profession. And what is baptism in Romans 6? That we are going to take you under these waters, not because there's any salvific effect to going into the tank and going under the water, but it's demonstrating the essence of your salvation, that your life has been buried in Christ's death for the forgiveness of your sin. But he didn't stay dead. He was risen from the grave to the newness of life. We're going to bring you out. That's the one thing I'll guarantee you at this church. If we take you under those waters, we will bring you out. Because that's the joy of the gospel, that you rise and there's a newness of Christ. There's a joy of your salvation. It's not that you've quit sinning, but boy, you feel entirely different about your sin now that you used to. And you have, a, you have a high priest ministering on your behalf that you didn't used to have. You go straight into the presence of God. There's rest for your soul. There's peace in his abiding presence. There's the pleasure of God on you through him. And you love God. You used to hate God. You were a rebel to his will. Now you love him. You long to do his will, even though this stumbling flesh gets in the way sometimes. Well, that's the first exhortation. Come on, draw near. And stop there. He says, here's the second exhortation. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I love this. Don't waver in your confession. In other words, circumstances of life sometimes bring doubt, sometimes they bring fear, sometimes there's a tendency to waver. He says, don't waver in your confession of hope. What's our confession of hope? That Christ is alive. That we're alive in him, we're experiencing that aliveness in tangible ways that are foretaste of what we'll experience one day fully in his presence. But don't waver in your confession. Why don't you waver? Now, this is the important part of this exhortation. You don't waver because he who promised is faithful. Here's why you don't waver. Because the righteousness that you stand in in the presence of Christ, you didn't earn, he earned it. Your trust is not in yourself or me, praise the Lord. It's in him. You'll fail your wife, you'll fail your husband, you'll fail the Lord. Christ will never fail you. 
He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Don't waver, because even though you're unfaithful, he's faithful. Was he who was faithful, Romans 8, to predestine you? Did he call you? Was he who was faithful to call you? Did he justify you by grace through faith in Christ? Will he who justified you be faithful to glorify you one day? He who promised is faithful. You know what I would say? I told you what is the therefore build on. Can I just be too hard for you to turn on me? Just listen to this. He who promised is faithful. He's the one spoken of in Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the interplace, interplace behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You know what the problem with those other priests were? Even if they were good priests, they kept dying. They were, they were mere mortals. They couldn't conquer death. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. It's fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sin, exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like the high priest before him, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 8, we have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places. Chapter 9, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood, securing for us an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those eagerly awaiting to him. What a savior. What a high priest. Amen? Let us hold fast the confession without wavering because he's the one that's promised. You know what his name is in Revelation? His name is Faithful and True. You can take it to the bank. Well, he gives one more exhortation here. This exhortation is now let us consider, verse 24, how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, this last exhortation, this last exhortation is why this gathering is so significant in light of who he is. Remember, the worth you ascribe to this is fully determined by the weight you put on the personal work of Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews says, because of the greatness of the Savior that you have, do not neglect to meet together. Stir one another up as you pursue Christ in his kingdom. You know, the series has been Seek the Lord While He May Be Found. Most of our sermons thus far have been how you seek him personally, how you seek him, we could even say, privately. It's about your personal worship. It's about your life in your home or maybe in your marriage and your family. But the essence of this text is seeking the Lord while he may be found 
includes at an essential level seeking the Lord while he may be found together. Seeking the Lord together that the most natural response for the saints or the most overjoying reality for the saint is to gather with other saints who have felt the effect of the redeeming grace of Christ in their lives the same way you have and come together and and together declare his goodness. Nothing's more natural for the saint. Nothing produces greater joy for the saint. Like I'm over here experiencing God's goodness in a way that wants to burst out of me. So are you, so is he, so is she. We gather and we burst open together. We declare the praises of God together. You know, I mentioned, or I had mentioned this, but something that's really special happened in our family. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my, uh, my fourth son, David, he, uh, he said, Dad, something, something happened in worship today. I said, what happened? He said, uh, it's really hard to explain. And, um, and by the way, he's, he's 10 years old. He said, there is a, there's like something, uh, and he's just really stuck. He's struggling to find the words. He's like, there's something, it was like something burst open in my heart while, while everyone was singing and he's like, it's like I wanted to cry, but that kind of confused me because I wasn't sad. It was like I was happier than I've ever been. I wanted to cry out of joy. And what do you think? Do you think I said, what? <laughs> I said, hey, welcome to the club. I feel that every single Sunday. I said, I've got great news for you, D. The Holy Spirit of God when he indwells a believer, you know what his favorite thing to do is? You know what the third person of the Trinity's favorite moment of your week is? This moment. When Christ is being lifted high, when the preaching of the word, and all the people are singing, his primary ministry is pointing to We're all singing declarations of the, of the goodness of Christ and the efficacy of his atoning work on the Christ. The Holy Spirit delights. You're gonna get a little burst in your heart. That's the supernatural joy of Christ being imparted to you through his Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, I'd go far as to say the flip side. If you don't know what David's talking about, if you're not, if you're like, I've never felt that, let me get, one of three realities is true for you. Number one, you don't have the indwelling Spirit of God inside of you because you've never trusted on Jesus. That's number one. Number two, you're, you're going, no, I'm sure I've trusted on Jesus. Let me, let me tell you, there's a reality of the Holy Spirit in our life that he can be, his ministry can be quenched. Picture that. He can be quenched. It can be, it's like throwing water on the fire. Put out. It can be put out when we have unconfessed sin in our life. When we've let something else reign, when our lives are worshiping something over Christ, the Holy Spirit, he's so muted and quenched that you don't feel his ministry until you, until you bring that sin to the Lord until there is uh, uh, the, the, the reinvigorating of the Holy Spirit's work inside of you, until you cooperate with his grieving over your sin, and it leads you to repentance. And then the third reason is, and I think this one gets a lot of guys, I think a lot of you have trusted in the Lord, and there's no overt sin that, in, in your life that's not been dealt with, but you're just distracted with, with, in worship. Which is, a, which is an incredible thing that happens as a result of spiritual warfare in this very room. That your mind wanders. You're wondering, how's your team going to perform today when we lost our quarterback last week? And what's that going to look like against the 4-4? I mean, 
Or you're, 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 you're thinking about the argument you had on the way here and you've got two more points to make with your wife when you get out so you can claim victory in this one. Or just the busyness of your week, you're kind of coming up. Some of, you are, some of you right now, this will be really convicting. There's some of you right now that have written four or five things down that you need to do this week. That's what you've used this time to do. And you feel kind of good about that, like at least I've got a game plan. I want to tell you what. Uh, the enemy wants to distract you from the, the holy of holies where you're invited to step in and experience tangibly the joy of Christ. When we gather and worship, do you know the first thing we do? If you're here on time, the first thing we do is we have a call to worship and we say something to the effect of, hey, t- everybody take a deep breath. From wherever you come from, from wherever's going on, from wherever the hustle bustle, let's be still for a minute. Let's have a moment of silence. And let's ask the Lord to clear everything else away. And let's just, let's, let's enter into that holy place. Don't worry, we can do it by the blood of Jesus. Let's enter in to the presence of God. Let's, let's enter into worship. And then the next thing we do from there is we go right into singing. We go right into uh, uh, declaring God's goodness, which I didn't say we go right into listening to the worship band sing. Massive difference. And it doesn't, I can preach this till I'm blue in the face. It won't matter what I say until you, it, this is like the old, you know, faith fall. You're, you're gonna have to trust me and step out there in faith and, and experience this for yourself. I can't experience it for you. But if you'll do this, in fact, we're, I was telling you, we're going to sing after this so that you'll have a chance. But if you will, and I don't care what you sound like, there's no one in here that sounds worse than me. Tony tells me, I love you, brother, but I hear something dying to my left during worship. <laughs> That's me. It's me. My whole section, I feel bad. I'm not, sometimes I sing towards the wall because I don't want to distract. But I'll tell you this, when you sing, there's a spiritual reality that happens. It's somewhat mysterious. The best I can say is it engages your mind and your heart in worship. Your mind, we're real careful of what we sing. This is not flippantly chosen, something that you know, was heard on K-Love. Uh, these are theologically rich hymns, old and new, that we, that we have literally vetted and thought through that, that explain the true essential essence of the gospel. And when you're singing, and I don't mean mumbling, I mean singing, your mind will now connect with the truth of the gospel. When your mind connects, I don't understand the mystery of this, but your heart's warmed by the truth of theology that your mind's now connecting to. So your mind and your heart are engaged worship like they won't be in any other way than singing, which is, by the way, Zephaniah says, God sings over his people because he's mighty to save them. We're made in his image. We sing in response to God because he's mighty to save us. There's just nothing like it. Singing at home by myself, it's okay. Everything but the singing. But when I'm with you and the anthem of the saints goes up, now you want the Holy Spirit in you to give a little burst it's going to happen. But you got to sing if you want to experience and participate in the Holy Spirit's joy. So we sing. We don't come to be sung at. We sing. Then we have a little missions moment. You know when we do that? 
we just want to remember that we can be so enraptured in Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, we need a reminder this thing ain't about you and it ain't about me. That we're to be thinking of the physical and spiritual needs of the people in this community all the way to the ends of the earth. So we have a missions moment. We pause and remember, oh God, there's a world that needs to know what I know about you. Please use me. Isaiah, here I am, send me. In a moment when your heart is pricked with the joy of Christ, we say, hey God, make my life count for your kingdom. Holy Spirit might uniquely prick you to be a part of the garage talked about this morning or some ministry in our city or in a third world country. And then we have the preaching of God's word. We open the word of God. And uh, not interested in giving you any ideas I've got because they wouldn't be that helpful. Really interested in giving you what God's got. Everybody that stands up here and preaches, that's why it doesn't have to be me. Every single guy is going to go like this. We're going to hide behind God's word. And our only, our only role during this time is to exposit, expose what God says in his word so that the Holy Spirit can use it to begin to prune and stir and abide in your life. Do you know, <laughs> this is harrowing, do you know how many hours a day the average American spends on their phone? Going like this, walking around. Do you know how many hours a day it is? The average American, four and a half hours a day. By the way, two years ago, it was two and a half hours. You talk about a cultural addiction. Four and a half hours a day like this. Getting counsel from uh, places that uh, are all over the board, but at best giving you some form of human wisdom, and at worst giving you stuff that will destroy your soul. Four and a half hours a day. We got the words here of the wonderful counselor. That's why you need more than this hour, which is, you know, 40 minutes. But 40 minutes, we're going to open this word, put down, if our distracted minds can, the phone, and say, God, will you speak into this? This being my life? Guess what the promise is? It's eternally true. It's always relevant. It's inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. And you need more than this 40 minutes, I promise you that. But you need this 40 minutes. We need God to counsel us and not the, merely the camaraderie of fools that we, that we walk around listening to. And then after the preaching of God's word, we will participate in, in uh, at least one of these ordinances or sacraments of Christ, communion. We'll always participate in communion which is where we, where we see a tangible representation of the body broken, the blood shed. We remember the gospel. It gives us a chance to be still and say, Holy Spirit, what have you been doing in my life in this service? What have you brought to the surface? How have you convicted me? How have you moved in me? What, what did I think in my head? Man, I've got to confess that. I've got to repent of that. What did you uh, pr- promote in my life? Man, I, I've got this vision of pursuing this or doing this. And that's where you take that. And you seal it, and you do business with God, and you say yes and cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and then you come up here and you receive these elements, remembering that you got a great high priest, and your righteousness is his righteousness. And this overwhelming sense of peace and joy is yours because of who Christ is and what he's done. And then sometimes, sometimes we'll have a baptism. I think we've got them in the second service today, we've got one. And now it's a visible demonstration of the gospel like I talked about earlier that we all celebrate the trans- 
transformational testimony of somebody's life and we remember God's done that for us and we want God to do that for others that we know. Um, well, let me, let me say this. And the final thing we do, of course, is a benediction where we pronounce a blessing over you. It's a scriptural blessing. We read scripture and we say, go in peace. Because the peace of Christ is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives us uh, after this full experiential worship of the Son. Well, I want to close just by saying this, this word he uses, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. The most important part about corporate worship is that it's corporate. All the other forms of worship I can participate in by myself, but the one thing that makes this one unique is we're all in it together. We're all gonna experience a movement of God together. And uh, I will tell you this, when I watch a ball game, I really enjoy it. I'm a sports fan. I can watch a ball game, baseball, football, basketball. I can enjoy it just because of the sport, especially if it's a good close game, drama down the stretch, I enjoy it. But when I go to the stadium, especially if I'm a fan, I get caught up in it. I get enraptured in it. I find myself cheering and sweating and being really into it and, and big moments down the stretch. There's electricity that I'm not getting in my chair at home. When I eat a meal, I'm nourished, hopefully, depending on what the meal is, but I'm nourished. I'm getting the calories I need and the nutrition I need. But when I have a family meal, I'm experiencing intimacy. It's, it's not just nourishment, it's intimacy. In personal worship, there's abiding, there's nourishment. In corporate worship, there's electricity and there's intimacy. Not that that can't happen personally, but it inevitably happens corporately. Uh, C.S. Lewis used to meet in a little uh, book club that grew called The Inklings with J.R. Tolkien and, and Charles Williams. And when J.R. Tolkien died, C.S. Lewis said, well, this death, will, I'll, never, I'll never get over it. He was one of my two best friends. But I guess it's the silver lining. I guess I'll get more of Charles than I've ever had. And then he wrote at the end of his own life, I was wrong. I didn't get more of Charles when he called J.R. Tolkien Ronald. That's one, one of those R's mean. Uh, when Ronald died, I got less because there were parts of Charles that only Ronald brought out. When you worship together, it's not less of Jesus that you get. It's more of Jesus. There are aspects of the gospel and the ministry of Christ that you're only gonna experience when you see them experienced tangibly by those around you. And so you're gonna get more of Jesus, more of the full essence of the gospel impact. The Holy Spirit's gonna to minister to you with what God's doing in your life and what he's doing in my life and what he's doing in the lives of those around you as we minister to one another. More of Christ, a richer, deeper experience of his presence so that this time is meant to be literally a foretaste of heaven. In heaven, it's not going to be just you, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. It's going to be the community of the saints gathered around the throne. Electricity and intimacy in full like we only have now in part. You know what David said to me, that little burst? 
there's these moments when we come together in corporate worship where the weight of the world just drops, where our spirits soar to the heavens, and where the, the anthem of the praises of the saints goes up, and we're enraptured with the goodness of God, and there's, there's oftentimes these little moments where I just want to cry, but it's not tears of sadness. It's tears of joy. Those moments are a foretaste of heaven. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? Hey, why do we not neglect this time? One worship service is life-impacting, life-changing. How about 52 in a year? What if we scale the work of the Holy Spirit in your life out 10 years? What if you were here over 500 times to feel the pruning, the stirring, the abiding work of the Holy Spirit in your life? What will be the cumulative effect of the next 500 worship services on your relationship with Christ and the presence of the saints? Brothers and sisters, we do not neglect this sacred gathering. It's worth everything to us because of the weight of who he is and what he has done. When you come on Sunday morning, can I pastorally and gently encourage you? Come early. Come early. Hey, I'm as guilty as the next person. Coming in, minds all over the place, disheveled, trying to figure things out, making sure all my kids are fully dressed, checking one more time. I get it. Come early. Come expectant. You know how you come expectant? Spend just a few minutes on your knees before you leave your house and say, hey, God, I'm going in. I'm going into the holy of holies, which you have the privilege to go in any moment of any day, but I'm going in with the saints this morning. Will you meet me there? Will you have a word for my soul that I need? Will you convict me of sin that I'm not recognizing or I'm distracted of? Come expectant. Come early, come expectant, and come to engage. Come to engage. In other words, if it were sports, we'd say, hey, come to play, not to watch. Come to engage in worship. Come to be still and then sing and then surrender and then confess and then receive and be stirred. This is our privilege in Christ together. Father, we seek you, and we don't seek you in a vacuum. We seek you together as the ecclesia, the called out ones. And this gathered assembly is so sacred to us. Father, may we make room for this in our lives so that we make more room for stirring and pruning and abiding. May we take those cultural distractions that impede upon this time and allow you to prune them out of our lives so this time can be exalted and sacred to us for your work to be done, for your joy to increase in our life. What a gift. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you